there's rumors in the Twitter sphere. Kind of on the topic for today. Love a role on the mat. On the mats. Say on the mat tonight. On the mat. Go on the mats. On the mat. On the mat. So glad you could make it out tonight. I, uh, I really appreciate y'all bringing me on the show. Good to go. Oh, yeah. All right. Looks like we got mics up and connected. Katie and Spencer, can you hear me? Yes, Sound sir. Awesome. Thank you guys for showing up. As always, thank you guys for tuning in, the listeners. Really excited for today. Professor Spencer's on with us. Katie's here as always. Man, this is going to be fun. I'm very excited. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Miss Katie. I'm excited to hear all the tea. I'm ready. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, so I just wanted to start off by saying, you know, in the group chat that we have, Katie had posted, you know, that post about the garage days and it had me going through a bunch of the old stuff, you know, maybe some old videos and, and man, it's just been so long. We've come, we've come quite a long ways in the past few years and I definitely want to dive into that. But also the topic of the day is, you know, longevity in the game and, you know, long before you met me, you were already on a, a pretty intense and and long martial arts journey since you were a kid. Is that correct? Definitely. Yeah, go ahead and tell us a little bit yeah. about, about that, you know, growing up and, you know, kind of, you know, what got you into it and how I know, you know, you had a unique childhood. So it'd be interesting for us to kind of dive into that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, unique to say the least. I was, grew up a pastor's kid in Montana and did karate from the age of seven. My dad was kind of the, the karate pastor in Montana. And at the time in the 90s, martial arts was still like people still question like maybe he can fly, maybe he can, you know, and it's either because he's a pastor or because he's a karate guy. But <laughs> things have, have changed a ton in the martial arts world. But that was back when people believed in, you know, like the dim mock death touch and all that kind of crazy stuff so it was definitely a different time yeah that was pre like in, in america especially in the states like pre-ufc you know there was always the argument and and a lot of the fights between between martial arts were exhibitions and mainly you know for charity or for show so definitely a different time what kind I'm just of upset because he's suggesting the death touch isn't real like spencer you're you're ruining my life are you serious I'm really afraid to offend people here, especially pro wrestling fans, and uh, <laughs> which is also very real. So we're good. No, 100%. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, and I was thinking about that. For me, growing up a lot, I wasn't exposed to a lot of martial arts, and um, so for me, pro wrestling was like the closest thing I got to any type of contact sport or grappling. But tell us a little bit of the stuff that you were into early, and what kind of influenced you as a kid. For sure. Definitely my dad was a huge influence seeing him. He was pretty active training when I was younger and ran a karate school out of Montana. I remember when he first started, my siblings and I, he would have two brothers and a sister, and all of us would go to karate class. It was in a town about an hour away. And so we would drive from our tiny little 200-person village over to a city called Malta, well, town, and... After maybe a couple weeks, maybe months, I don't, it's hard to remember when I was that young. I was about seven. But after a couple weeks or months, my siblings totally stopped going and it just became 
my dad and I, there was other students, but from my family, I was the only one that continued to go. And I remember thinking back, like at the time, totally baffled that my siblings were just passing up this opportunity to learn, learn something like I was getting to learn at the time. I, I, it still kind of confuses me to this day, but I really enjoyed the training process and always liked it. And it became a really special bond between my dad and I driving to and from this other, this other neighboring town. And we'd stop and grab a soda on the way home each time and just talk. It was a really, really special time in my life. And I got, I got better. I enjoyed it. And then when we moved to New Mexico in 99, I was 10 and I had been training karate throughout that time. And once we got here, bullying immediately became, that was never a thing in Montana. We were just too spread out. I mean, I didn't have any friends either. I didn't have any people to pick on me or to treat me well. There were just no people. So uh, when we moved here, bullying became a bigger thing. And I think that's a lot of men's kind of superhero origin story with the martial arts is getting picked on, searching for some kind of power, figuring out how we can become the strongest man in the world, and then pursuing whatever that is. So I tried to continue my training uh, once we got here, and it was a little bit tougher. My dad was way more busy once we moved here. Both my parents started working, and so... I've been homeschooled my whole life, but we actually kind of were homeschooling ourselves for a lot of those days once we moved here to Montana, to New Mexico. And so my training here actually started on a heavy bag. I knew what I knew for the three years of training I had in Montana. And I did a house sitting job and saved up and bought an Everlast heavy bag from Sam's Club. Came with the gloves. I still have my first set of gloves and uh, the old bag and everything. And that was just a daily pursuit. There was not a single day from there well into my 20s that I didn't go out and hit the bag with some kind of hundreds of reps of a technique. So I was definitely a weird kid. And weird. like if my son acted like I acted at that time, I would be worried about him for sure. <laughs> training when you're young is one thing, and that's probably more training than most young people do you know, at that age. But as you get older, then the training starts to take its toll and, and definitely injuries start to pile up. So what, what was that like managing, you know, still in a young, still in a younger body, but definitely susceptible to a lot of injury in this type of training? Definitely. I actually went to see my first uh, spinal specialist through a couple of referrals when I was 16 and so I was having issues like with my lower back and bulging discs and all kinds of stuff from that age on so I'm still kind of actually struggling with some of that same stuff now but the tools I've figured out between then and now in the last 18 years it's been so many different things but it's helped a ton but even back then um you know any, they say if you live right, you're going to see uh, an orthopedist, a bone doctor. And if you live wrong, you'll see a cardiologist. You'll get the heart opened up, you know. Mm-hmm. So either way, there's going to be – death will come knocking either for joint pain or something else, you know. Yeah, and for most people, it's the cardiovascular. But, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I like that. I, I don't think I've heard that. So 18 years, you said. That's a lot of training. And, like, what's that broken up with as far as, you know, how much of it was striking, how much of it was grappling? And uh, kind of talk a little bit, if you can, about what got you into grappling. Yeah, totally. 
that 18 years is strictly uh, competing in jujitsu. My first jujitsu comp was 18 years ago when I was 16. Or would that be 17 years ago? Anyway, right around that mark, a whole adult person ago, I was competing. I competed in grappling. What got me into it, actually, one of your recent guests, Oscar Tinajero, was my first grappling coach. And I was super into martial arts. I would go, my parents would go get movies from Blockbuster and they would always let me rent one of the UFCs. And so I knew what was up with jujitsu. I knew that it was the sauce, but I knew there was no place to find it around me either. Um, I did think it was incredibly boring and I didn't want to like, I didn't want to have to do it, but I knew I had to do it if I was going to be the greatest martial artist in the world, which was absolutely the goal starting out. Um, so one day my dad, he got connected with a guy uh, named Sal Lantini who knew Oscar and my dad had come home and said, Hey, I know a guy and uh, I guess he's willing to train you. He's teaching classes. There was a place, I think it's a charter school now on Compo called, it was called martial arts world. And he took me by there after work one day and I got to do my trial lesson and I did a, a grappling lesson under Oscar and then a, uh, uh, Muay Thai lesson under the late Joe Tarman, who was a phenomenal martial artist. He was a 122-pound Muay Thai champion under Duke Rufus out of Milwaukee. So he he definitely knew his stuff. My first grappling experience was super, I mean, I just like most people, but maybe maybe worse because now we have so much exposure to the UFC and grappling and stuff that I think most of the time when people come through to the gym, they at least know what jujitsu is, even if they don't have any skill in it. But I didn't know much about it and did not have, I mean, I had zero. I think about the things I did back then in training and I feel like no person I've ever seen in a trial lesson is as clumsy as I was, I feel like. <laughs> That's hard to imagine now because most people come in and are really taken by your style and your athleticism. Yeah, thank you. I do pride myself on my movement capability now and stuff, but it was every angry inch was absolutely hard-earned. I appreciate your comment about first time seeing jiu-jitsu and seeing it was kind of boring Um, because someone I might know who's also a striker who might be sitting right next to me (laughs) also thought it was pretty boring but was like, you know what? I got to do it because I want to go into MMA, so appreciate that. Yeah, well, and especially the way Hoist Gracie did it back in the day was not the way anybody wanted to win a fight, you know? To sit under some 300-pound guy and let him try and pull his hair out while he gives me big old mouses under my eyes, and then eventually I asphyxiate him with my thighs after 40 minutes of fighting. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like tons of fun to you? It sounds like uh, an illegal portal on the internet. Oh, no. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, you know what? It's it's funny because I've always, I was never a striker. And so grappling was always what I was looking for as far as a martial art. And as luck would have it, you know, I met Spencer and, and immediately was was drawn to his style and the way he taught. But I, I do, I see the look that a lot of the strikers give and man, if they, if there was any way around it, if they could circumvent it in any way, they would avoid training it. I'm sure. Absolutely, I think if there's any, I would have been one of those people. I remember calling uh, Lorenzo Martinez, the the senior, the old head of Bone Crusher, 
when I was 16 and telling him, you know, I scheduled my first MMA fight with him. Back then you could just, there was no sanctioning. And the only rule was no kicking somebody uh, in the face if they're on a three-point stance. That was the only outlawed technique. Like soccer uh, kicking? Yes. That, and you could soccer kick him in the head. They just had to be fully lying down or or on both knees. But you couldn't, if they had three points down for some reason, then you couldn't uh, kick him in the head. That was the only restriction. But I remember calling him and telling him my arrogant 16 year old self was like i like to stand and bang and i i mean i liked striking but to be honest i really hadn't stood and banged with many people and in hindsight i realize now that i've never liked to stand and bang i don't like that at all grappling gets uh, a lot of injuries maybe in the joints and stuff depending on how mobile we are or how ambitious we are with our movement but striking has its own downside with all of the head stuff you know and it's I'm glad to see now the way that the sport is developing, that people are so much more careful about sparring and hard sparring to the head and stuff like that. That is not the draw I had when I was coming up in MMA. So it's, it's taken a lighter turn and I do appreciate that, but it was hard times back then for sure, especially with striking. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the wild west, you know, like I said, fights weren't sanctioned. You could just call somebody and be like, hey, I heard you have an MMA fight coming up. I want to be on it. And you were on it. Yeah, and I'm sure that the training was definitely also a lot different at the time. Yeah, the focus of my training, as I recall, was, I mean, mostly sparring, mostly MMA-style sparring, if MMA was the goal at that time. I had these uh, – I came up, like – I was all about K1, so I don't know if there's a lot of K1 fans around anymore, but there was a tournament called K1 Max, which was only 155-pounders. And I came up, that's where uh, I would watch Dwayne Ludwig and Masato and Buakapo Pramuk and all of these super legendary strikers at 155. And it was my plan and goal and belief that I was going to get good at kickboxing and take it over to Japan and fight in K1. That was, that was the initial plan. That's pretty cool. I do remember K1, and that's some of the only stuff that was coming around televised back then for me that I could see. So um, that, that stuff was really cool and very exciting to watch. It's such a crazy, crazy, interesting sport, and I wish I, wish I could enjoy it how I did back then. There's a part of you, once you're kind of awake to grappling, you're like, no, well, this is only half of fighting. But also there's that part where when you see somebody, like I used to like to watch the – UFC Ultimate Knockouts collections. And now I don't know if I could stomach sitting through a whole DVD of that anymore. Yeah, now that we know kind of the after effects and how much it affects a person and not only their their career, but their, the rest of their life. Um, again, like you said, the culture is leaning more away from that, which I'm glad, but it is it is hard to watch sometimes. Yeah, I think there's some of those things you can't unsee, and especially if it happens personally to you. I've been knocked out a handful of times. Some of them were bad, and uh, part of me thinks that you might lose a little something that you never get back each time that happens, you know, which we it's really a gamble, especially I like to fancy myself a fairly intelligent person and articulate, and I don't want to degrade into some of the punch drunk characters that we've seen now, even in MMA, some of the early guys, Gary Goodridge, and I know, um, sadly, Dean Lister is having some serious issues, Forrest Griffin, uh, Mark Kerr, 
And these guys end up lucky if they can sell cars by the end of it, you know? We yeah. were just, like, Chad and I were just talking about this the other day. Mar- the martial arts world has gotten really good about, like, mental health and making sure that physical, like, your brain health is good. I'm checking up on CDEs and also football. I know we bring football up a ton on this podcast. And so I, I think it's really interesting that now you're seeing the repercussions of that in the NFL world as well, with athletes coming forward and saying, like, yeah, I sometimes forget my own kids' names and stuff. It's it's pretty crazy. Definitely. Yeah, and if, they were, if the NFL wasn't spending millions on covering up some of the data about that stuff, too— I think we would be even more shocked at what some of these guys are going through. It's Absolutely, dude. I know uh, my my son's on here, and Sean played football a little bit when he was younger, and I think it was largely in part that I was such a big football fan, you know. But um, after after just one season of coaching his team and seeing what we were asking these kids to do, repetitive, you know, you know, just blows to the head in the hot sun at that age is just not worth it, you know? And we, I mean, Sean can attest, I never asked or put any of my other, um, my other kids in football after seeing that. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a, it's a, I mean, I've, I don't know, people like football. I've said for a while now, if all that stuff comes out about it, it, I think it'll be a dead sport or illegal within the next 20 years, but I'm, I could very well be wrong. People really, really like it. So yeah, it's super popular and they're changing the rules of the game. You know, they've, they've modified some stuff and they're, they're now, you know, just now trying to hopefully clean up some of the game, but it's stuff that we don't think about until we actually see the repercussions. And MMA is another one. Like how are, you know, how are we going to justify watching some guy get knocked out three times in a row and just keep sending him back out there. I mean, Shogun was on the card this last weekend and it was almost, it was really sad to watch. I didn't see this card this last weekend. And that's actually part of this whole thing is I really rarely watch the UFC anymore, but Shogun was one of those guys that I was inspired by early on, like before I ever fought. And the fact that he's still fighting now is it's impressive for sure but man if we could take a look inside or if we if you could be him for a minute and see what's changed over time i'm not i'm not sure it's even worth the money he's made which in mma the scratches and it's really not there yet no not at all and hopefully the sport is changing for the better but yeah really was sad to see somebody because just like you i looked up to him you know growing up watching ufc you know watching mma he was one of the greats man and but there has to be something put in place or something done for these guys to make sure that, you know, they have the tools that they need to just live a meaningful life after all this stuff is done. I'm at that point, even with Cowboy Dude, like, I love him. I will be a Cowboy fan for the rest of my life, no matter what he does. But a little part of me is really happy that he's phasing into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I know he was on this card this last weekend, and he ended up not being able to fight because he was having crazy stomach issues. But... Like, you hear him talk about it, and, you know, he has two little kiddos now, and I'm just really hoping that it's one of those things where he goes out in a blaze of glory, and then he he rests his head for a little bit, because it's crazy, dude. That's such a big thing with us. I'm like, I want to make sure that we can run around with our kids someday, you know? Like, your body can only take so much, exactly what Spencer was saying. Or with, like, choking knockouts, dude. If you get—every time you get choked out, like, blood chokes— it actually, they've already proven that it affects your brain. So 
So important to keep those in mind. Yeah, I didn't know that about blood chokes, to be honest. When I was a blue belt, we we actually did a science experiment for my old instructor's uh, daughter's science class where a bunch of us volunteered to see the average time it took to go unconscious in like three or four of the most popular chokes. And yeah, we got, everybody got choked unconscious like three or four times that day. What was the chokiest choke in that, uh, in that demo or that experiment? So they didn't, I don't think they did rear naked. And I know, I think we did four chokes, but the only two I can remember are, (laughs) which maybe this is a testament to everything else we've been talking about. I can only remember the arm triangle and the, and like a regular triangle with your legs. Um, and the, the average time to unconsciousness, like once the submission's in and then we say go and the person starts squeezing, the average time to unconsciousness was about three or four seconds. Yeah, well, and that's with a training kind of squeeze. But if you're trying to see, you know, how fast can I physically put this person out and you squeeze at zero to 100 as hard as you can, people go out really quick. It, it, that, so I'm trying to find the article I found about blood chokes and the effect they had on the brain. But usually it's if they're held longer than when they're already unconscious. But yeah, every single time yeah. that happens, apparently it can it can genuinely um, have negative effects on the brain every single time, which is crazy because it's a it's something that can build onto itself. You know what I mean? So I'm glad that you turned out a okay, <laughs> and I'm well, glad this time that, experiment turned out well. Yeah, I'm I'm alive, and there's that. I wouldn't say you know, not without my struggles, totally related to all of that stuff, but. But we're here and we're doing it, and I plan to stay in the game for a long time. So that's cool. And so, again, on the topic, any other any other comments or maybe suggestions you have for people who are out there that have helped you stay in the game, stay you know training hard, and kind of stayed healthy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think anything, and we know this, but we don't do it. It's just like flossing, you know is our mobility work whether it's yoga or stretching or if you have some kind of pilates or gymnastics background or something that gets you not contracting hard all the time and not tensing we have so much tension as it is but an op not working out but working in and going inward and finding that parasympathetic state instead of always the heightened up hyped up central nervous system that we get where the only way to calm down after training is you got to go home and smoke a fat bowl and like a whole ritual to calm down that a lot of the athletes have where even meditation as far as being able to relax the mind or put yourself in kind of a sharper state for competition I think can help a ton I've struggled with spinal issues thankfully no kind of scoliosis or anything like that but I have, uh, I recently re-herniated my L5 and that was, I've had, if I started my list of injuries right now, we would be on all night, but I've had some really bad ones. But as far as pain goes, this was, I mean, a 100 out of 10, I couldn't walk for a couple of days. And then just, you don't truly know what writhing in pain means until there's actually something making you like back then like linda blair in the exorcist and just like throwing yourself around the bed and around the room trying to find a position that will give you some kind of respite and i i see that uh like andrew wiltsey recently went through the same thing 
we have an athlete, Jude, who had hurt his, and it wasn't a sudden hurt, uh, a sudden injury, but it's a chronic, it's a chronic pushing on a nerve bundle from your disc being pinched on one side, which I think comes from the way that we move with like uh, the butt scooting on one hip is our spine is preferentially crunched towards that one side and really squishing that disc out. And eventually it starts pushing on that nerve and it really becomes a problem. Yoga or any practice, you know, I'll talk about like the four directions of the spine with a lot of my personal training clients that I'm trying to keep healthy, uh, which is like some kind of forward bend, backward bend, both sides and twisting, which are the basic motions of your spine. And even just something like that to check in and, you know, as a daily practice to check in and check in with yourself and see how you feel. If when you lean to one side and then go to the other, you'll see that you have a good side and a bad side. And you really need to have just two fairly even sides if that's, if that's possible for a jiu-jitsu athlete. And so there are some things, there are specific stretches that I think contribute to a jiu-jitsu athlete's health, like a winged shoulder opener. It's kind of, I won't describe it on the podcast, but things that can open up the front of the body and kind of open up, especially the, the front of the upper body and open up the back side of the lower body, hamstrings and lower back. And uh, I think that's, that's huge. If somebody was going to commit themselves to a minimum practice, I would say find a way to open up your pecs and your neck and get your spine moving in those four directions. That's absolutely awesome advice. And for the people that don't know, or maybe knew maybe a little bit, you're a wealth of knowledge as far as the human body goes, movement, and you know, from everything you talked about, your striking training to your grappling training, we didn't even touch on you know, the wealth of knowledge that you have as far as lifting goes, which is, you know, I've been able to do personal training sessions with you and they're always phenomenal. And, um, and then yoga as well. So, I mean, just so much that, that you do in these sessions that we see true true growth and and a lot of healing in some of your clients yeah thank you thank you very much for that yeah and, and you know i now that you mention it lifting lifting should get at least an honorable nod because you don't have to become a bodybuilder and you don't have to or whatever kind of strength athlete but to check in with some of those basic movement patterns against resistance can be really good for you too you we're going to find ourselves with one leg in front, one leg in back in our stance work for most of our grappling for wrestling and probably for guard passing. And some of those positions, you know, if you are squatting over one leg all the time in your sport and not over the other leg for anything, then strength imbalance is as dangerous as a flexibility imbalance. And so I think if somebody can do some kind of basic, just like those four directions of the spine, there's like four basic movement patterns, kind of the push-pull, hinge, squat, and loaded carry. And those are basically the things that you can do with your body. And to have some kind of practice that you can enjoy of whatever it is, you could handstand work and pull-ups or any kind of pushing and pulling against resistance with your upper body. And hinging is like, like a forward fold with a straight back. So like a deadlift or good morning, kettlebell swing. And then a squat pattern and then a loaded carry, which the loaded carries can really do a lot too to uh, even out that spine. Like the disc stuff that I was talking about, a suitcase carry where you walk for a length of time with a weight only in one hand and you have to dynamically stabilize with that opposite oblique 
drills like that can be really good for a jiu-jitsu athlete's longevity. And I think it's even better if they think of it as something that keeps them in the sport and on the mat and involved and able to do what they really intended to do, which is jujitsu, rather than their new passion and get carried away with the lifting. And then you can go too far in that direction and hurt yourself with this whole other thing, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so you have a concept that you've told me and I repeat it all the time to people that I'm working with. But if you could touch on, you know, the the four pillars that you talk about of athletic training, I really love that concept and the way you paint that picture. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, that and you'll notice like the four like four movement patterns, four directions of the spine. The, there's a lot with the, the four directions is what we use in our Zia symbol for the school. I'm really big on the four thing and and those four pillars building a strong foundation and what I refer to that with with jujitsu as a sport is, and you have it actually in any sport, but it's it's easy to spot in jujitsu. Any improvement you can make to these four pillars will improve the others and will improve your game. And one is technique, the other is strength, one's flexibility, and one is your stamina or endurance or cardio. And you'll notice people will always be will always excel at one pillar over the others, but you occasionally get those people like GSP was that for, for MMA and you didn't know how to fight him because a striker would come in and get wrestled. A wrestler would come in and have to strike with him because he had those different areas built up. He could be somewhat of a chameleon and mold himself to the structure of who he was fighting. And we'll find in our own games that uh, like in my own, Strength and cardio is always something that I need to push towards for my my build. I've been able to do the splits since I was a kid, and I've never stopped being able to do them. I can put my legs behind my head. I'm naturally flexible, not when I have a herniation happening, but when things are – when my body is, is as it should be. Naturally super flexible, and I've always really chased after and emphasized technique and strength and cardio – are more of a struggle for me. Those are the things that I have to chase when I pursue my own training. It's awesome. And it's a great way to look at your game and, and see where you can make improvements that will, you know, really help round you out. You know, me, I feel like I'm always weakest in the flexibility and the cardio area. And I've always felt really good in the strength area. And, you know, because of studying under you really good in the technique area. So it gives me something to shoot for and something to work towards in my training, which I've loved. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. And as, as your coach, I would definitely say the same thing. You know, it's strength and technique are your strong suits. And it's interesting, too, because you will, like uh, somebody who is naturally strong uh, rather than flexible, like, uh, like my professor Tom, you know, will, will tend towards certain positions like half guard. Whereas that, even though I'm very technical in half guard, it's not a favorite position of mine because I like to bend and flex around people and flow a little bit more. And that's, uh, I get stopped up in half guard and it can get stifling for me. I can get smashed by, by stronger, more stable bodied players. It's interesting, man. So I've been training under you for, I think, you know, the better part of six years now. And it's, it's been amazing what you've done with me as far as, you know, what I look like when I first walked into your door and, you know, we've, we've run, we've run through quite a bit of time and we'll probably have to schedule another episode to talk about 
you know, the history of Zia. But I, I really, it's a testament to, to your teaching ability, what you've done with the people that have come in and how fast people get good with your system. Yeah, thank you. That's, uh, that means a lot. Specifically, I would say because I think that's my major goal with, with my students. I've heard Keith Pedigo uh, from Daisy Fresh Guys talk about it before. He's, he, people have you know, accused him of only having good white belts and good blue belts. And he's like, well, yeah, I'm winning white worlds with white belts and blue belts. But these good white belts and good blue belts are going to be good purple, brown, and black belts when they stay in the game. And my, my focus is to have a really soft spot for people that struggle with it, that come in and have a difficult time uh, with the technique at first. And I can I feel like I'm fairly sensitive to people's feelings and moods, and I can tell when people are struggling, and I feel it viscerally in myself. And I really want, I really, not for, not for the business, you know, we're, we do well, and I don't want, it's not about keeping that member for me, but keeping that member there for who I know they can become. When I see them, and I feel like, I feel like I can see their potential. And who they could become if they're willing to stay in it. And it means so much to me if I can smooth out that process for them on the way from unknowing to knowing, you know. Oh, absolutely. It's one of the things that I've loved studying under you and I've tried to emulate in my teaching. And uh, I think I can sympathize with those people because I'm this, I was the same person. I struggled with the technique. I, you know, I was overweight and I was out of shape. But the fact that you were so encouraging and uplifting, I think really went a long way to, to me continuing in this art. And that's, you know, I think a lot of people maybe don't get that. It might get turned off or turned away from it because they don't have that, that kind of atmosphere. Definitely. I have to like, for sure, as second that, I think that the mark of a good gym in my experience doing a few different martial arts and training a few different places is knowing if your coaches want students because they want a certain amount of students in their gym or if your coaches want students because they love to coach and they love to teach. And I think both you and Mark are the second. You love to teach, you love to coach, and you're both of you are incredibly supportive. Um, and like when my knee got injured, I there was not a day, even if I was sitting on the edge of the mat just watching where I didn't, I could still ask you questions and make sure that I still felt engaged with the class. Um, and I think, again, that's just, it just shows how great the Zia coaches are and the Zia community is. Because to me, that's so important to have coaches that want you there because they want you to succeed in what you're doing. They don't want you there because they want a paycheck or they want X amount of students on their mat at any given time. So super do appreciate both of you guys. Thank you so much. Ultimately, I, that is what it comes down to for us. And I really, I mean, you guys are always so kind with the praise that you always make me feel like a million and two bucks, but I really, you know, those are the people that it comes down to when we do this and we do it to change lives. I don't need to make a cocky wrestler who comes in, who already has his confidence and things squared away. I love to make those guys champions. I love it. I mean, I might love my students winning comps more than any coach in the world loves their students winning comps. I feel it all the way down, but those aren't the people who need it. The people who need it are the people who didn't know they could be champions, you know? 
even when I go out and compete, which it gets a little further between these days with running the gym and stuff, but I've tried to stay active from the very first time we opened. I think even that, you know, I've had, I've been without a coach in my corner now for like six years. I, I had a coach. Well, and I shouldn't, I'm going to, I'm going to expand on that because Mark has been coaching, but I've been without a coach that was above me who was coaching my technique and stuff throughout my training camp and then being there in my corner. But there's been something really special about, about coach Marks and my relationship as far as having him in my corner. And there's this feeling of, and I don't want to say this wrong, but not wanting to let him and the other students down, wanting to make everybody proud of me because not for me, but I want the students to, I want them to go back to their house and be like, dang, my coach is badass. I know I'm in good hands. I know, I know he knows what he's doing because I saw what he can do to those other guys and they're black belts. And if he can do that to them, then I know what he's showing me. I'm, I'm going to go out and when I compete, I'm going to have that same confidence and fire because I know that what he's showing me is right. That's awesome, man. And I know, you know, you haven't talked about it too much, but it, it has to be really hard not having someone to learn from and to continue that journey and to be, and not only that, but to have all these other people depending on you to continue their journey. And I, because I know that more than half of the victories that I have in competition are because of your coaching. You know, at, in the early days, it felt like an RPG where sometimes I didn't even have to worry. I just had to know, I just had to listen to you and I would be good. And, you know, the, I think it gets really understated how much that matters in the sport. I hear other coaches in people's corners and at high levels. And I'm just like, wow, like, I can't believe that that's the type of support they're getting from their corner. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's cool. And that's, you know, that's kind of one of our secrets at Zia. And our members know, we've talked about it before, is the the coaching and, you know, you and and subsequent coaches at the gym have learned because we have, it's teachable. It is teachable how to coach well from Matt's side. You know, things like no negative, negative compliments like, well, fine, maybe just stay there. It seems to be working for you or, oh, well, pass the guard, pass the guard, pass the guard. Oh, see, I told you if you would have done, if you would have passed the guard, then, and I hear that often, which is crazy because now this person who is in a, what feels like a life or death situation, then certainly fight or flight situation. Now they've got to manage thinking that their coach is upset with them. Uh, there's embarrassing things being said on a video that their wife is recording of them. Their kid is watching and now thinks that they suck. And there's like, there's so many layers that this person has to pass through rather than specific, always forgiving. You never, you never harp on them for a mistake. You don't even address the mistake until later after the match when, when they have let go of whatever the result is, but specific, even between let, you know, and this is part of teaching yoga has helped with this. But knowing which limb you're looking at when I say grab his wrist with the right hand, reach over with your left hand, grab it, get a chin strap with your left hand, shrimp out to the right, throw your right leg over the back, you know, and specific instructions like that where the person, they can tell themselves, oh, I don't have to think about my wife watching and filming and what my coach is going to be upset about or they can think to themselves, all I have to do is go to that lower reptilian brain and just pay attention. I know my coach's voice. He yells the whole time in the training room. I've gotten used to my coach's voice. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to perform 
at the level I've I've adjusted to and I'm going to try to do what he says, you know, and I've tried to tell the students too. there are times when I I can't see everything that's happening. And if they they know they've got their move, they know they know where they're at and they don't need the direction. That's good. But I'm going to always keep talking and providing some kind of content for them to work with in case they need it. You don't have to take it. But but it has to be there. Yeah, um, man, I could go on and on for days about your coaching. You know, one of my pet peeves is definitely hearing the negative comments like don't do that or definitely commenting on something that already happened in the role. Oh, man, that just drives me nuts. But, you know, seeing how calm you are on the mat and, you know, always, always positive. You know, I knew when I fucked up on the mat, I would I'll be honest. <laughs> when early on I knew if you stopped talking I knew I fucked up and I knew I was in a bad spot and you were just waiting to give me something positive that I could do but there was nothing positive going on at the time so if you were quiet I was like oh fuck you know I'm re- I'm in a bad spot <laughs> and that is that is uh if I do give negative direction during coaching it is that it's a silence and sometimes it is like you know it's uh if you can't say anything nice it's better not to say anything at all and that's definitely the kind of person you are but uh but it's also i think it's great because it gives me time you know i know what to do when i'm in that spot i know that i've just got to you know stay calm and work out of it and then as soon as there's you know a positive move to make you're right back on you know with with the direction so it's been helpful like i said more than half of the matches i've won or because of, you know, your coaching, definitely. I appreciate that so much, man. Yourself and all the people at the gym are never short of praise towards me, and you guys keep me super pumped up. I really appreciate it. Uh, Now, I know we ran a little bit long, guys. I'm really sorry, but this is a conversation I really like to have and uh, never get tired talking to you. I would definitely love to have you back and cover again. Like, we didn't even get into, you know, the history of the gym and, you know, your first gym. So there's tons of stuff that we can still talk about. I'd love to have you back on and hear those stories. But right now, I know there's a bunch of people that want to get on the mic and maybe ask a question or make a comment. So mics are open, guys. Please feel free if you have any questions. We'll you know raise your hand if you need uh, the invite to speak. Hey, Spencer, it's Rob. What's up, Rob? Hey, I just want to say, uh, going back to the to the coaching. Every time I've been rolling uh, the competition, you and Mark have actually always been super positive when I'm rolling, and I really do appreciate that. And I've also heard like when people are like when coaches do say negative things to their people who are rolling, like and now we felt bad for that. But I, I really do appreciate the way you and Mark coach, and I feel like I've always I'm learning something new every day when I'm at the gym with you guys. And also, Nicole wanted me to tell you that she's. She twitched when she heard your uh, hurt injury stories. Oh no! Uh, well, I'm 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 pretty healthy right now, so she can she can rest easy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just, yeah, and I also just wanted to say, like you and Mark have been amazing coaches, and I can't wait to keep on learning from you guys. Thank you so much, man. And you're one of those uh, you're one of those already champion athletes. So Rob is a black belt in judo. If you haven't. Uh, heard this podcast much before um you're rob are one of those awesome champion athletes already that have come in with the background and so it's you're one of those athletes that it's really fun to coach because i know you're going to go out and and do something that the person doesn't expect when you go out there with 
a white belt on for jujitsu and then end up turning these dudes on their head every single time. Super, super fun. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, I just to double on top of what everybody else has already said, I mean, I've always really enjoyed yours and uh, Coach Mark's teaching styles. It's it's the way that I like to run with the kids on the football team. I'm a football coach, too. So there's a way that you can talk to people and get them to do what you want without being a, a total asshole about it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And the checks in the mail, guys, I really appreciate all the praise. I'll make sure and take care of you on the back end like we promised. Everybody here is looking for stripes, man, not checks. <laughs> No, uh, David. Hey, man. I'm sorry for shitting on football for a little bit there, man. I know we bring it up a lot, and I know you. You know, you're a good dad, man. You're a good football coach. I didn't mean anything uh, about those comments, but um, it that was just no, my experience. Honestly, though, like the way I do enjoy football, and I love the way that the sport is going with how they're trying to protect the players with you know new rules and new equipment and doing all these studies and it, uh, completely agree you know if there wasn't so much cover-up and kind of cloak and dagger on all the statistics that they have found in our bringing up I mean I'm sure we could learn a lot more you know what I mean but as like where it comes from my kid, we spare no expense for equipment. Like we, we get the best that we can to ensure that our kid is going to be safe. But, and I know that's difficult. People come from different backgrounds and different pay scales, right? And people can only do what they can do. But I mean, how can you put a price on your kid's health? You know what I mean? If you're going to put them in that kind of sport, you should do your absolute best to get the equipment and know the rules to be able to protect them. Absolutely, man. And I know, uh, Professor, I mean, growing up, I mean, it's going to be, I know you've got a young a young son, and it's it's hard when they come up and they want to do, you know, something and they got their heart set on it. And I think sometimes the best thing you can do is just um, – just kind of support them you had mma fights young didn't you professor yeah yeah i did uh kickboxing in my teens and then my first mma fight i was 17 and i was always fighting those gams those grown-ass men's mans so it was definitely intense yeah i actually lost my first mma fight when i was 17 by a decision I was going to say TKO because I had lost a kickboxing match by TKO. And that's what TKOs do to you is make you forget things. Yeah. And I, you know, and I got mine from football. I had, uh, you know, I was, I had a lot of head trauma saw our junior, senior year in football and was taking like Advil and aspirin daily just to get through practices and football games. You know, back then when we're young, we don't think about it. And then, you know, looking back at it, it's definitely different perspective. My one of my favorite things to do in sparring was to show like some of these bigger guys that I would train with how tough I was by just keeping my hands on my chin and just walking down their punches. And I'd let them just, I mean, thrash me as hard as they could. And I would just take them on my forehead and think, you know, as long as they don't hit my chin, I'm good. I'm not going to get knocked out. And I would end up like, I mean, I remember a sparring session I had with a guy, Marcus Riley, and uh, I don't know if he still trains. This is a long time ago. I had, like, friends and family there. It was, like, a big sparring day. 
and we were going at it and he was he had some good kicks and really long legs and uh he's kicking me keeping me at bay all kinds of strikes and then I just decided to like walk down his and I walked him right out. We weren't in a ring, we were on mats and there was a door near the mats. And with my hands up, I just walked him down while he was hitting me and deliberately didn't even throw a shot, which was stupid on my part. But I walked him right out the door and then was like, you know, this was like a for me a symbol of my toughness. And I remember my dad like even congratulating me later on or uh, pumping me up for it. But after that sparring match, I was like, I gotta go to the bathroom and I went to the bathroom. And I sat in the stall for like a half an hour and just cried. And I don't, I don't know why I was crying. I wasn't necessarily sad. I just don't, my head was just like my body and nervous system didn't know how to react or process that amount of like trauma and brain damage in one sitting. And I, everybody had come in later to check on me one after another. And I was like, no, no, I'm good. But I didn't, I just stayed in there because I didn't know what was happening to me. I didn't know why my body was breaking down into tears without like a, any kind of noticeable mood change or anything. So it's definitely, uh, you know, avoid it when you can is where it should be the bottom line probably. But yeah, it's, it's crazy that you say that because to me, I remember when I was younger, there was a fight that always stuck in my head and it was Forrest Griffin and uh, Keith Jardine. And Jardine had a vicious, a vicious TKO on on Forrest. And when he got up, you could see right after the fight, he was just bawling and bawling. And I think even his his corner man tried to like throw a, a towel over his face to kind of hide it. When I was younger, I I was I was like, oh, you know, what a bitch. There's no crying in the octagon. And now looking back at it. You know, the guy had just taken on massive head trauma, and that's a, definitely a side effect of, you know, taking that kind of damage. Yeah, I'm sure. That's that's crazy. Uh, that kind of stuff is why they don't let Joe Rogan interview somebody after they've been knocked out anymore, is because it's so unpredictable what will happen. Oh, yeah. It's impossible to, you know, to be coherent, let alone have a conversation with some someone in front of millions of people you know you shouldn't be asking someone to do that and i'm glad they they changed that me too i don't want to jump topics but i saw jamie got on the mic i didn't know if well we got a couple people lined up yeah definitely get your questions comments in guys hey i just wanted to say thank you to both you guys you're both fantastic coaches and uh you know not to overstate the what's already been said but uh for me personally since I've been training with you guys, uh, I've done jujitsu before, and there were certain techniques and certain things that I couldn't do, could never, uh, I, I knew what they were. I've seen them executed, had them executed on me, but I just couldn't get them, and I, I kind of wrote them off and said, well, you know what, that, that's not going to be something in my arsenal. It's not something I can do. And, you know, just in the last year, have been able to pick them up, and, and it's it, my physical abilities haven't changed, but you guys have been able to help me out and help me wire my brain and get the neurons firing to where I can actually pull these things off against somebody who doesn't want me to do them to them. And back to what you were saying about coaching, both of you engage in what I like to call productive coaching. Like you're always, if you're telling somebody something, you're telling them something to, to, to do, to execute as opposed to, you know, criticizing what they're doing or telling what they're, you know, what they're not doing. And uh, I've seen the, the strong uh, dichotomy of that where, you know, it, in some of the better matches I've had where both of you guys have uh, coached me through and uh, my opponent's coach is like, come on, don't just lay there. You know, you, you didn't just come here to lay on the mat. It's like, well, the guy would get up if he could. 
or maybe he could if you could give him some some idea of what to do or some strategy or some viable pathway forward but yeah i just wanted to say that you, you guys have both helped my game grow and you know by being smart about it helped me helps me stay in the game and and keep improving and thank you so much dude that's a very good example of of unproductive coaching too don't just lay there is a is a perfect example yeah don't just lay there and you got like a guy who's like got you in side control and he's grinding your face with his shoulder into the mat and you know or really bad neon belly and it's like well you know he, he doesn't want to be there you know give him a give him a pathway how to how to get out of there but you know uh not to not to bring up some dark and terrible but t- back to tbi's I had a friend of mine that I worked with for many years uh, get into a rollover accident at work, and uh, he got medically retired because of a, a TBI. But uh, what reminded me of this when you talked about crying, he rolled over a truck, uh, went to the hospital, got checked out, said he had a mild concussion. He went home. He woke up the next day and he called me and he was like, hey, uh, you know, well, I called him to check up on him. And he told me, hey, I'm not I'm fine. I'm just playing video games. I got a bit of a headache. I'm like, all right, cool. And then he called me later on. He's like, hey, you mind swinging by the house? And I'm like, yeah. And I, I did. And we just wanted to get, hang out. And he was like, hey, uh, I want to tell you something, but I don't want you to tell anybody else. And I'm like, well, what's the problem? He's like, I can't read. I'm like, what do you mean you can't fucking read? He's like, I do not. I can't read. I'm like, okay, you need to talk to a neurologist. And man, they ended up sending him to Walter Reed to get treated in the same ward where they treat guys who get blown up overseas. And he was doing flashcards. It was bad. And he had like unusual emotional reactions to things that didn't make any sense. I can't remember what it was, but like there were certain flashcards. We couldn't remember what they were. And it would be like, they'd show him a picture of a tree. Oh, okay. That's a tree. They'd show him a picture of a cat. It's a cat. When he saw a flashcard that had a cactus on it, he would laugh hysterically. And he wasn't, he didn't think it was funny and he didn't know why he was laughing. And there was another picture that I can't remember what it was, but he would also cry. And he wasn't sad or emotional. He was just like, I'm crying and I don't know why I'm crying. And that lasted for about two years. And it took months before he could start to read again. So, yeah, it makes you realize, like, you know, it isn't something to be played around with getting cracked in the head, no matter what the venue is, whether it's, uh, you know, stand-up sparring or, you know, getting rolled over in a vehicle. Shout out to you for being such a great friend to go over and make sure that he goes to see doctors. First of all, Jamie, that story for me personally, like scary, knowing Chad is a fighter, knowing that Mark and Spencer have both fought, like to to know that you can have an injury like that. Um, so shout out to you for being such a great friend that you made sure he went and saw a doctor. And no, I totally agree. I think that we as humans sometimes forget how fragile our body actually is, especially the insides of our bodies. And I think that brains are one of those things where you just can't, you can't play around with it. The brain and spinal column for me are the two where I'm very, very careful with. Dang, those are the main two things I messed up. Yeah, your spine and your brain. (laughs) Yeah. Did that, so that guy, Jamie, did he ever regain full function? He did. He, he, he did and came back. He actually, they were going to medically retire him and he came back to work, but it took two years. Years and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, speak ill of him, but I, I, he's not a hundred percent. Rollover accident where uh, what did it to him was he was climbing out of the, um, the, uh, what's called the driver's side door. The car, uh, the vehicle was on its side and he pushed the door open. It was like a Chevy Tahoe 
and he's standing on the steering wheel. He had propped the door open, and we don't realize how heavy those doors are because they're just, you know, swinging. And he was standing up on the steering wheel. He was about to climb out, and the door slammed shut and hit him right on the top of the head. And I remember him telling me it was like he was a jack-in-the-box getting smashed back into the box. And it, that's what did it. it. It wasn't the the rollover. It was the door hitting him on the top of the head. And he's, it knocked him out unconscious. And, wow. yeah, he had brain bleed. He had a, he had, it was a whole host of uh, issues. Like I said, he lost his ability to read. His sense of smell was uh, severely degraded. It was bad. Like, he'd wake up in the middle of the night. He wouldn't recognize his wife. He would be trying to... Uh, get out of the house because he thought the house was on fire it, he was he was in bad shape it was i've seen other ones but that was the worst one i ever saw that's a crazy story to hear man that's it it's it to me i feel like it says a lot about the human brain and how much it can heal and recover and continue to grow and learn but also you know once some things are broken you know it's it's hard to fix them i used to work with a guy who's a black belt in town under oscar or Sensei Joe, and he was doing uh, behavioral therapy for some of the clients I worked with, and he always he always said it's like you, it's like jamming a pen into the motherboard of a laptop, and you never know what it's going to affect. Some of the keys might still work fine, some might be completely off or never work again, and you you really at this point we just don't understand enough about it to know how it's affected. I can hear the drink clinking away, Mark. Yeah, that's all me, guys. If there's no more questions, Des, I don't know. I uh, I know you had the speaker on, but uh, if you have a question, not we can wrap this up. Thank you guys Thank so you guys much so for coming much. in.